0: Amen. Go ahead and have a seat, church. It's good to see everybody. My first time back uh, in, in a while. Um, and so I am just feeling uh, blessed to be back every time I'm gone. I miss being at NBC. What's up, Dan? I miss you too, brother. Thanks, buddy. Thanks, buddy. Uh, it's good to be back. We're going to be in Mark 14 today. If you have a Bible, Bible app. I hope you always bring one with you. Uh, go ahead and get it open today. We're wrapping up the Not-So-Superheroes Uh, series today, and we're going to do it by looking at three people today, Uh, and we're doing it, and if we were going to label these three, uh, we would call them the availables, all right? They're just kind of there. Now, the series we've been through is kind of designed to help us understand how our story and the story of God kind of come together, because in the summer here in San Diego, we got Comic-Con, we got all these things that release big Marvel movies and all that stuff, and it's easy to kind of go, oh, you know, to admire David, admire Abraham, and, uh, you know, some of these real big heroes of the faith, but most of us kind of, you know, you can relate to them at maybe at one level, and I can talk about, we can talk about how we face our giants and things like that, but it's hard for some of us to identify ourselves with a guy like David or, or Moses or, or these bigger characters. In the Bible, most of us feel more like the kind of uh, the background people, the stage crew on the big drama of life, those kind of characters. And so today, uh, we're gonna look at some more of those. And my hope is that over the course of these last eight weeks, you've been able to kind of go, oh, okay, I, th- that's me, that's me. And I hope one of these three today uh, will fit the bill for you as well, all right? Uh, so again, not every hero of the Bible is super. We've covered that. Super, by, by saying they're not so superheroes, we just mean that they're not people that you would necessarily associate with the big heroes of the Bible, not that they um, are bad people or something like that. And the three that we're going to look at today, we're going to look at them and, and kind of uh, applaud them for their availability to God, but particularly a particular kind of availability, an open-handed availability. So you can be available, but not really available. I can come home after a a stressful day or something like that and sit at the dinner table with my family and technically be available, but I'm not really available. My head space is somewhere else. Uh, I might be stressed out and, and respond very quickly and curtly, perhaps, or something like that. So I'm there in body, but I'm not really there. You know what I mean? So you can be available to God technically, like right now. You've made yourself available to God on a Sunday morning. You're here. You're in the building. Uh, and and you're ready to do something. At least you've said that. Some of you drug yourself here. You drug your kids here. You did something like that. But you're not necessarily. It's up to you to decide if you're really going to be available, right? So my prayer is that you make yourself fully available, and that we, at this time of the year, where here in August we kind of have a second New Year's. It's for those of you who have school age kids and things like that. Summer's kind of winding down. Parents are kind of thrilled about that because they're tired of the kids. Kids are kind of almost looking forward to school because they're tired of the parents. And you have this kind of nice time where schedules get renegotiated. We can decide what our priorities are going to be, what we're going to sign up for. We're going to do these different things. And so I hope that you'll take some time to think this morning and for the next several days about what priorities you want to set, who you want to become, and what a life that is aimed in that direction, what that might look like from top to bottom, from the time you get out of bed to the time you go to bed, uh, what your your week looks like, what your weekend looks like, uh, so that we can pursue the heart of God on a a daily basis, for the gospel is really supposed to be something that uh, permeates every day and every part of us. Let me start with this. God uses the available. In some ways, he can only use the available, and the only times that you see him use people who are unavailable, is when he takes it upon himself to make them available by force. Jonah had his schedule cleared for him because he decided he would take off and head on a different agenda. There are times where God will do that. But for many people, it's putting yourself in the position for God to be able to use you. That is when we see God take those big steps and do those, those great things in our lives. If you ask a busy person if they're available when their loved ones need them, many of them will say, well, of course I am. You ask the same busy person, are you available for whatever God would call you to do? Yes. But if you ask their loved ones, are they always available? They might have something different to say. Uh, And it might be that if God were here and could be interviewed and and we were to say, hey, is so-and-so available for you all the time? He might likely say, no. We want to be people who are available. Because I'd like to think that each of us if we knew that Jesus actually wanted our attention or anything from us the question would be hey name the time name the place name the price just give me the assignment and consider it done lord that that would be the attitude that we would carry into life right but the sad irony of many a disciple's life not everybody but many of us is that we often make a decision to build a life that is unavailable in the best sense of the term not technically available available, fully available, heart, mind, soul, strength, time, talent, treasure, fully available to God. And now that the summer is setting and the school year is almost upon us and work is about to change for many of us, the vacation time that we've allocated for the year is pretty much blown through at this point. It's time for this kind of checkpoint for us to go, okay, what are we going to do with this next season? God is at work all around us all the time, and he's poised to use us in very profound ways. And today's not-so-superheroes give us a look at the availables and what it looks like to be open-handed available. And they're contrasted with one guy who is kind of the villain in the story. He's not available and he chastens them for their lavishness of availability. I mean, we do work hard, don't we, to seem important? That's kind of why we make ourselves busy because I feel like if I'm at home on a Friday night with nothing to do, then I must not have any relationships. I must not be very important. If, I don't, if you can call me at a moment's notice and say, hey, do you want to get together? And I can say yes. That means I have no life. This is kind of how our minds work. I am busy, therefore I am. As a life motto. That's a thoroughly unbiblical way to live. And the crash test dummies that we have become with busyness. Well, you'd think that after a while we would learn. Uh, we, would, we would go, okay, I'm not doing that again. Nope, this time I'm going to do it differently. Well, the good news with God is we always do have a chance to do it differently going forward. The bad news is that's going to be up to us in a lot of ways. Now, it doesn't mean that we don't need God in the process. We don't, it's not going to be done through his power or anything like that. But if we are, say, a fourth committed to that task, then we might as well not be committed at all. We won't get there. Um, We're going to begin in Mark 14 today. And I want us to notice some of the details of this text. And here, here, this is a dinner at a a man's house by the name of Simon the leper. How about that name, huh? Here we go. While he was at Bethany, he being Jesus, in the house of Simon the leper, as he was reclining at the table, a woman came with an alabaster flask of ointment of pure nard, very costly. She broke the flask and poured it over his head. There were some who said to themselves indignantly, why was the ointment wasted like that? Now, in John, we get a, he tilts his hand and says, that was Judas, by the way, if it's the same story. Um, But he says, Why was the ointment wasted like that? The ointment could have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they scolded her. They scolded her. Jesus said, Leave her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a beautiful thing to me. For you always have the poor with you, and whenever you want, you can do good for them, but you will not always have me. She has done what she could, she has anointed my body beforehand for burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will be told in memory of her. Okay, the superhero of the story is Jesus. That's the way that it works in the Bible. God is the hero of the story, in every story. So, Scripture has the self-revelation of God. The question we want to ask is, okay, what does this teach us about God? Well, here Jesus teaches us some important things, that there's really nothing that he's not worth. We'll come back to that one. But we start off at this guy's house, Simon the leper. I mean, how would you like to be known by your disease? Be named, you know, Tim the typhoid guy or, or something, some disease that you'd had that you'd been cured from. Now, we have to assume he's probably been cured of leprosy at this point or nobody would be at his house. So we, we want probably look at this and go, okay, he's not currently leprous. He was healed by Jesus And so now, the man who at one point, nobody could be around him, nobody could touch him, that he is now hosting people in his home, and among them are Jesus and this unnamed woman. Simon has every reason to isolate himself, but he doesn't. So the guy that was once the outcast is now the host. I think that's pretty powerful. Now, I'm not going to draw too many analogies because they're not the same, okay? They're, they're apples to pears. They're not apples to apples. But there are some similarities. I want you to think about the habits that have been broken for you in terms of hospitality over the last few years. Uh, because people aren't, weren't comfortable having people in their home. Some people weren't comfortable going to anybody else's home. I'll speak for the Spivey house. Our Spivey house has always been essentially a revolving door of people all the time. I mean, all the time. Um, you know, it was pretty common. I mean, we'd host groups at our house. We'd have people over for dinner all the time. Kids would have their friends over. Uh, you know, people, people would, would come over all the time. Well, COVID broke that habit, right? And it wasn't a conscious thing. It wasn't like we said, oh, it's just nobody wanted to come to our house for one thing. And then there was that period of time where it was just kind of like, okay, let's just leave each other alone. Well, that kind of broke some habits in a lot of them. And the idea that you would just pick up the phone and ask somebody to come over to your house for dinner is, is a habit that has kind of been broken. Uh, having um, uh, going to people's houses in some cases uh, is different. Our homes have have kind of been not not shuttered completely, but but just the habits. It's it's like other habits that you have that you just break kind of sporadically, like maybe you're really fit and disciplined during the school year, and then the summer, you just kind of go, I'm going to eat whatever I want. I'm just going to do whatever, wake up whatever time I want. You just kind of let him go. By the time you get to back to school, then you have to ramp up again. I think Simon here, when he has this, this time where he's healed by Jesus, he at every reason, every reason, this is a man who is used to not being touchable, They're not being able to, nobody can be in proximity to him. He's viewed as thoroughly unclean and dangerous by everybody until he's healed by Jesus. So let me ask you this What about the way that you live has changed since Jesus healed you? And that could be, I mean, we could name people by their sins, right? We could say, uh, I don't know, Alice the adulterer, uh, Bob the, I don't know, the sin that starts with B, right? Uh, and just say, okay, we're going to name people after their sins and their diseases and everything, right? The, you know, and so Simon's not currently, as far as we can tell, it's not actually explicitly said, but you put the pieces together, you can kind of guess he's been healed. So Simon's like an alumnus from the University of Leprosy or something. He's, he's, he's healed now, but you can see the difference. Can you imagine how fulfilling it must be for him to now, from being completely and utterly untouchable, to now being a host, and to be able to host Jesus at his house. He makes himself available. There's supposed to be a difference between pre-Christian Tim and post-Christian Tim. There should be an observable difference between those two, that the before and the after photos should look different. Imagine signing up for a weight loss program where the before showed the real picture, and the after, the person was 10 pounds heavier. Or imagine a drug rehab program where the before picture, they looked bad and they looked awful in the after picture. Spiritually speaking, the idea behind Christianity is there's a transformation of the heart and the life. Heart, mind, soul, strength is fully devoted to Jesus, the power of the Holy Spirit leading us forward. And we're going to that there should be some observable transformation in the life of a healed person. Just like Simon was obviously cured of his leprosy. That's why there are people there for dinner. Is it obvious? Is there anything about the way that we live that has changed since Jesus healed us? Simon doesn't know what's going to happen. He doesn't know what it's about, what's about to happen as far as we know. And neither do we when we make ourselves available. Open handedness. Just offering stuff to God. Setting the table for God to work. You know, we can't always make that stuff happen, but we can make ourselves available, and it's God's promise that it will happen. And God's act of miraculous Holy Spirit power that makes that stuff happen. Now we have this other hero. She's not given a name. Some have hypothesized that it's Mary, not Mary Magdalene or Mary the Mother of Jesus. Mary of Mary and Martha, Mary fame, that Mary. Uh, There's some reasons for that, and some people think Simon the leper might be their father, Lazarus' dad and Mary and Martha's dad. Maybe. But it, it does make it seem like Mark probably would have named her and Jesus would have as well if that was who it was, so we don't know for sure. What we do know is she is a true worshiper. We're told that wherever the gospel is proclaimed, what she has done will be told, and yet here we are telling the story again, but we're not told her name. We're not told her name. Let me ask you this. Would you be content to do good and even have the the deeds that you do live on if nobody ever knew you'd done them? I mean, does it matter that people know it's you? Or are we content to just let those things happen? I mean, this story, whatever she does here, Jesus thinks it's a big, big, big deal, and we'll explain why in a second, but what did she do that was so worthwhile that he says this story is going to be told? She anoints him with an extravagant amount of ointment. This is about a year's wages. A year's. So this makes like Chanel look like nothing. This is, this is serious, expensive stuff. And Judas, if we kind of grab borrow a little bit from the Gospel of John and drag it into this story... If it's Judas or if it's just the crowd murmuring, think about what they're saying. They're critiquing her for wasting this, which is a way of, of basically saying he's not worth it. He's not as worthwhile as helping the poor is. Now, we learn from John that the reason that Judas tended to think this way is because he had his hand in the cookie jar all the time. So he wasn't really concerned about the poor. He was actually just concerned about that money being taken and put in the treasury so he could skim the cream off the top, which is the case with a lot of people. Sometimes the stuff we, the, our reason for condemning things are not as altruistic as we would make them out to be. Judas says essentially she wasted it. Really? Jesus says No. She's anointing me for burial. Now fast forward just a little bit longer. There's our man Judas. He sells Jesus out. He didn't offer it to Jesus. He essentially sells him for 30 pieces of silver. A lot less money than this woman pours out on his head. A lot less. How much less? Like 11 half months less wages. In fact, 30 pieces of silver, if you want to know what that amount was like, 30 pieces of silver was generally what was exchanged. If you had an ox and that ox went and killed somebody's slave, you would compensate them for the slave with 30 pieces of silver. So Judas goes and says, hey, it's like I'm selling a slave, essentially. That level of wage. He trades... For Jesus' life. And then as the God to look at the woman and say, you wasted your money. Let me ask you, is there anything that he's not worth? Is there anything that Jesus Christ isn't worth? What would that thing be? I mean, the stuff that we are willing to do for uh, different things. I mean, we, we just got a dog, all right? Now, if you've been at NBC for a while, you know we have a, 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 a mixed history with pets in our family. Uh, we once had a dog named Lucy, uh, short for Lucifer, and we, uh, we, we rehomed her to a much better place to go. But we, we have an ongoing debate, should we get a dog, should we get a dog, should we get a dog? We've tried a cat, that failed. We tried a dog, that failed. Well, over the summer, my wife and I were in Ensenada, Mexico. We were at a, at a winery uh, on vacation, and, and, and there was a little uh, floppy-eared, big old puppy running around the winery inside the tasting room. And, of course, it was drawing all the attention of everybody that was there, and, and so we asked what the deal with the dog was. And they said it was, a, it was a, kind of an outcast from its litter, and nobody had been willing to adopt or take the dog. And uh, so M's like we we should we should adopt it, and I was like, no 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 oh come on hun. no 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 huh? I'm no no I'm drawing the line, down goes the foot, all right no okay so after we brought her home, <laughs> we we get her home, <laughs> we name her Vina, wine right in, in, in Spanish, and so we 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 go ahead and we. You get her, and I, that led me to go, okay, how much do dogs, how much is it going to cost me? So I started to look up, how much does it cost to have a dog? Something that generic into Google, and that led me to, well, the average American spends just shy of $1,500 a year on their dog. All right, so that's a mm, little over $100 a month. Okay. All right. Ouch. And then I, that kind of just my normal preacher uh, way of going about things uh, mentally, I start going. Okay, well, uh, how much do we collectively spend on our pets a year? One hundred billion dollars a year. One hundred billion. You remember when Elon Musk and the guy were arguing about solving world hunger? The number was sixty billion. Hundred billion a year on pets. Hundred billion dog gone. Sorry, I had to say that. But you just kind of <laughs> sit there and you go, man, uh, now there's nothing wrong with pets, right? Not, not saying that. But then I go, well, surely there are people that overdo it. Let I me mean, think of example, and it hit me. I'd used an illustration in a sermon maybe 15 years before of a person who had left their entire estate to their dog. And I think it was $2 million. Well, since then, there was a gal that left $80 million to her German Shepherd. That estate has now grown to $362 million. That German Shepherd has a net worth of $362 million. Uh, And I have watched people go to blows over whose dog gets the water. I had a student in my religion uh, 301 class in the spring semester at Pepperdine who had literally gotten into a, a squabble, a physical altercation over whose dog got to sip out of a bowl on the beach, okay? Is it wrong to have pets? No. Is it wrong to give your dog a good life? No. But, Christians, here's where it went. I wrote my dissertation on the spiritual cultivation of generosity in people. You've heard me quote this number if you've been around NBC for some time, and it's probably gotten worse than this. It's an out-of-date number, but I'll try to update you if it changed. In an average American church, church members one-third of those members give zero. Not one time. Another third give $500 a year or less. It's 10 bucks a week, roughly, or less. A third give $500 a year or more. So, let's play some averages here. That tells me that the average two-thirds of the church members in America spend three times more on their dog than they do on offerings to the church. Now, would they say, well, my dog's more valuable than Jesus? I hope not. But the question put on the table here is, what is he not worth? Time? Talent? Talent? treasure do our songs in our life preach what we say we believe see Judas here he's one of the 12 his 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 badge here says hey uh hi I'm Judas the apostle and yet his attitude doesn't say he's an apostle his heart doesn't say he's an apostle his name tag does but not his life Now, what he decides he's gonna do, and, and so he's over here robbing the treasury. He ends up then selling Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver and then looks at this woman and says, How dare she? And Jesus goes, What is the matter with you? What's the matter with you? She's anointing me for burial. What is it exactly that he would not be worth? Is he not worth our availability? Is he not worth my time? Feels blasphemous to even ask the question, but is he, is he not worth, you know, uh, a substantial amount of my, is he, is he not worth being first? That's something that every single Christian needs to be able to ask honestly and then follow it up with the question of, okay, to what extent does my life match that? Do my life and my words or my life and my profession go together? It says that she is, Jesus says she's anointing him for burial. So when it comes time for him to get buried, we get superhero number three. Not so superhero. His name is Joseph of Arimathea. Mark fifteen forty-two to 47, we read about Joseph. This is right after Jesus had been crucified in the in-between. When evening had come, since it was the day of preparation, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council. Now, there's some details in here that I've read, the Bible. I've, I don't know, I've read this 8,000 times. It just escaped me for some reason. Joseph of Arimathea, a respected member of the council. Okay, I remember that part, but I didn't remember was this part. Who was also himself looking for the kingdom of God, took courage and went to Pilate. He went to Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Pilate was surprised to hear uh, that he should have already died. And summoning the centurion, he asked whether or not he was already dead. When he, learned from the, when he learned from the centurion that he was dead, he granted the corpse to Joseph. And Joseph bought a linen shroud and taking him down, wrapping him in the linen shroud, laid him in a tomb that had been cut out of the rock, and he rolled a stone against the entrance of the tomb. Mary Magdalene and Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, saw where he was laid. So you've got a secret disciple here is what you have, a guy who believed enough in Jesus that he wasn't going to let his body go where the bodies of condemned criminals went, which was to the rubbish heap for the dogs and the vultures to chew on. Joseph, a member of the council who just crucified him, right? He says, no, 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 no. And so not only does he put himself at risk by the council potentially being able to find out that he was going to treat Jesus' body with respect, but he goes to Pontius Pilate. That's way up the chain. If you go on the Israel trip, you'll be able to go to where Pilate was hanging out when the, when the crucifixion and where the little trial takes place, a little exchange between he and Jesus takes place. It's a pretty impressive stinking place. Pretty awesome to be old. And here goes Joseph of Arimathea, And and says, I'd like to, to have his body if that's okay. And Pilate's response is, is he already dead? Like he's shocked that Jesus is already dead. And so he asks the centurion to come over and verify and he says, yeah, he's dead. Okay then. And Pilate lets him have the body of Jesus. Now, But let me preface this by saying, I know God could have found another way if he wanted to. But I want you to contemplate the implications if Joseph doesn't do what he does. And Jesus' body is just thrown on the rubbish heap for the vultures and the dogs to chew on. Is there a body to resurrect? Is there an empty tomb to point to? I mean, Joseph is the only disciple Who steps forward to take the body? He's the only one. I mean, the others were nowhere to be found, as far as we know. There were a few of the women that hung around to see what would happen next, but everybody else apparently was so shell shocked and heartbroken that they'd kind of scattered. But akin to that, if you kind of do your digging on prophecy and and the messianic prophecies of the Old Testament, there's The prophet Isaiah prophesies that the suffering servant is going to die as a condemned man, be assigned to the grave of the wicked, but he'd be buried with the rich. This is Isaiah 53.9. Strange combination. Going to be convicted as a criminal be buried with the rich. That's kind of hard to do in Judaism back then. But it happens in part because of Joseph of Arimathea. Joseph is a rich man. That's obvious from this. That's why he had a tomb to spare. And because Jesus was buried in his tomb, that prophecy is fulfilled. So he has two things here with his availability. He's courageous, willing to risk, and he's generous. Joseph went directly to Pontius Pilate and at risk of the council to come and do this for Jesus. Um, There are a lot of implications, uh, ways we could apply this. I want to talk specifically to those of us who, and almost everybody in this room fits this category that is reasonably wealthy by worldwide standards. If you live in America and you could get up and get yourself here and you're wearing clothes, you're in the top 5%, probably in the world, okay? That there is a responsibility of people who have power like Joseph had and people who have wealth like we have to be willing to step in and do things that make the world right. Because God has entrusted them to us. Part of the availability is saying, look, I can help here. God has put me in a position to be able to help here and I want to do the right thing and then taking the steps to do that. Uh, You know, far more minimal examples, not not even close to what Joseph did. Um, Many years ago, this wasn't too long after we'd moved back to California from from Texas. I came out on a Sunday morning and my car had been towed from in front of my house. Now, if you want to make a, a preacher upset, tow his car from the front of his house in the middle of the night. The tags on our Texas to California thing had expired. And so some loving uh, person thought in the middle of the night, I know what I'm going to do. I'm going to tow this guy's car. So I get up to go preach, and I don't have a car. And at that point, we had three young kids. Money was tight. We were starting the church. It was, it was, it was, it was tough. And I was not happy. And uh, somehow I found my way down to the, to the tow yard to try and get my, my car back at first I thought it was stolen. I'm from Long Beach. I assume everything's stolen if it's not there. But I was like, uh, you know what? Hey, and I did some digging, found out I'd been towed. So I go to the tow yard. There's a line, gal in front of me, clearly is not from the country. uh, Originally, she's very, very broken, limited English. She's got four or five kids with her. And uh, they're pretty well-behaved little boogers, actually. But but she's, you know, she's got her hands full. So anyways, we wait our turn in line, and then she gets up to the window. The gal behind the window is, is about as helpful as most people are that work at tow yards. Um, attitude was not great. Now, that's a tough job. I don't, I'll cut her some slack. She probably deals with every, you know, charlatan in the world, and, and it's a tough, tough job, and everybody's trying to argue with you and negotiate with you. But this gal, this poor gal could not. She was, the price tag on getting her car out, and I don't remember why that was the case, but it was north of $2,000 to get her car out. And you could just see it. This lady was tired. And I don't mean tired like, oh, I've had a hard day, tired. I mean like, you know, August and you put roofs on houses or something. You see those guys getting their big gulp refilled about 6 o'clock at night. They're sweaty. They're sunburned. They're tired, like bone tired. Like, like I'm, as soon as I hit the air conditioning at home, I'm out for the night kind of tired. She had that look. This is a Sunday got all these kids, and she's trying to communicate to the gal behind the counter, I don't have that money. I can't afford that. The gal behind the counter is giving her the brush off and basically saying, well, I'm sorry, then you're not getting your car back kind of thing. So I'm watching this go on. I'm already mad at my own plight, but I'm watching this go on, and I couldn't, I, there was something there, I'm like, I can't, no, 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 no. this is not, this is not right. So I decided to take it upon myself, I'm gonna intervene and essentially be this gal's advocate to the, to the gal because she wasn't, she, she completely lacked the language skills, first of all, to be able to make her point. And the gal on the, the counter wasn't willing to bear with her long enough to get the point. The point was, there is no way, you, you now own the car here at the tow yard, if that's the bill, I cannot get there. And so going, you know, there's nothing I can do, blah, 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 blah. ma'am, I've already told you. And she can't understand what the gal's saying back. So I just jump in and I kinda of say, She's trying to say this, da, 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 da. We go through this whole deal, and I negotiate the thing down to maybe 1500 The gal has, I think it's like 1300 or something like that, but she's still a couple hundred dollars short, and the gal won't let her get her car. And I said, Now, here is what I'm thinking. I go, Look, I've already burnt my bridge, and when I get up, she's probably going to double whatever I, I owe the place to get my car out. And, but I, I felt God's saying to do something, so I just I covered the, the end of it, so she'd get her car back, right? I don't even know if I told you that at the time that I paid it so she'd get her car back. All right now, I'll pat myself on the back for that, and I'll think about and that was a lot of money for us at the time, a lot. There have been hundreds of times where I have done the exact opposite of that, where I have seen something and I was in a position to help, but I was too busy. I was annoyed. I found a way to say, I deserve to not have to deal with this today. And boy, as a pastor, you can do that like all day long. Man, you know all the people I help and everything. Can't somebody else help somebody for change? Blah, 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 right? And I, I think m- all the times I've disappointed God by not doing the good that was in front of me, right? And we talked a little bit about this during the Good Samaritan, you know, several weeks ago. But those of us who have power and have wealth of some kind? God didn't give it to us just for our enjoyment. He, he gave it to us to be able to be his agents in the world and help just things take place. Joseph of Arimathea makes a move toward justice there too, not just the other. He's like, no, 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 that's not right. We're not throwing this guy's body to the dogs. No. And he steps in with his influence, and he steps in with his wealth and does something good. That makes God very happy to the point that to this day, you can't read the Easter story without realizing the tomb that Mary and Martha run to. Or the, uh, uh, the on Easter Sunday, is Joseph. And to think about, okay, what if he hadn't done that? You know, could God have found another way? I'm sure He could have. But He didn't have to because Joseph was one to, to stand there and say, "I'll do it," at risk to himself. So quickly, let's review. Not-so-superhero number one, Simon the leper. Is there a difference? Let's ask ourselves these questions. Is there a difference between our before we came to the Lord, before Jesus healed us, and after? Or are we still living in the past? Are we living as though we're Simon the leper instead of Simon the cured or the healed? In the case of the unnamed woman, whether it's Mary or anybody else, the question is, what isn't he worth? What are we not offering to Jesus because, oh, it might be too much, or I don't know, maybe I ought to do this. What is he not worth? Time, talent, treasure. And then to those who have, and again, that's pretty much everybody in this room, has influence, has wealth. What are we doing with it to make sure that God is using us as a, as a vehicle of grace in the world in which we live? Um, we're going to gather around the Lord's table right now as we reflect on those questions. Uh, We're going to take the bread and the cup, and uh, you should have received the elements on your way in. If you did not, just put your hand in the air. We'll bring them to you if you would like them. We have some down front here. Uh, Usher here, usher here. So we've got some down here in the front. I wonder if Judas would have said to Joseph of Arimathea, "Uh, Joseph, he's not worth it. And what a blasphemy that sounds like, right? Uh, But this is our chance where we remember Jesus. We do this every week here at New Vintage. We take communion and we remember with bread and cup what was given to us and the worthiness of our Lord Jesus Christ. So as we... As we gather, let's think about the questions that we've asked this morning, that the scriptures asked us. About the worthiness of Jesus and about the the change that ought to occur in our lives through the impact of Jesus on them. And then what we do with the blessing of the impact that Jesus has on our lives. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, with bread and cup now, we say thanks for... The example of these not-so-superheroes, the Joseph of Arimathea, Simon the leper, and this unnamed woman, Father. For all the nameless superheroes whose names you know and whose stories are told throughout Scripture, uh, Father, we ask for uh, the answer to the questions that the text has asked us this morning. Let me say, Lord, would you you help us live the kind of life that, that preaches and shouts and sings truthfully about the greatness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? That doesn't just sing about the great things he's done, but demonstrates the great things that he's done. So, Lord, now as we gather around the table with bread and cup, body and blood, we say thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray.